The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. Dharma, incomparable, profound, minutely subtle, pervading the entire universe, revealing right here, right now, is rarely experienced, even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. We can see it. We can listen to it. We can express and know it. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true meaning. <coughs> Often we give up our essential right to renewal, to accommodate our own anxieties and those around us. For sure, living is not easy, and living openly is both wondrous and dangerous. The fact is that shedding or changing, no matter how useful or inevitable, always has a pain of its own. Unfortunately, there is no escaping this underside of growth, without which there is no maturity, no growth. So it is not surprising that there are many feelings and emotions peculiar to human beings that prevent us from shedding or changing what has ceased to work for us, including fear, pride, nostalgia, sentimentality, a kind of comfort in the familiar, and a want to please those we love. Often we give up our right to renewal to accommodate our anxieties and those around us. The Melanesians of New Hebrides contend that this is how we lost our immortality. Sir James Fraser has preserved their story. It seems, at first, human beings never died, but cast their skins like snakes and crabs and came out with youth renewed. But after a time, a woman, growing old, went to a stream to change her skin. According to some, she was Alta Marama, change skin of the world. She threw her old skin in the water and observed that as it floated, it caught on a stick. Then she went home, where she had left her child. But the child refused to recognize her, crying that its mother was an old woman, not this young stranger. So to pacify the child, she went after her old skin and put it back on. From that time, human beings ceased to cast their skins and died. And so, 
we cease to shed what's dead in us in order to soothe our own fears as well as the fears and discomforts of others. We remain partial. When we cease to surface our most sensitive skin simply to avoid conflict, we remove ourselves from reality and all that is true. When we maintain ways we've already discarded just to placate the ignorance of those we love, we lose our access to what is eternal. Good evening. Thank you for coming out on this gorgeous spring day. I thought the fever would bite you and you would not make it. So thank you for getting here. Tonight we're going to talk about the single most difficult issue for human beings. And yet, while it may be that, and it most certainly is, at least that has been my experience in the many years of counseling and private conversations, as well as teaching publicly, this single most difficult thing for human beings is the single most essential process, and in fact, life force of the universe. And as Mark Nepo's words suggest to us tonight, when we resist, when we refuse to change, to shed the old, we literally cut ourselves off from that life force, from growth, from necessary maturity. And tonight I want to ask you to be open to the very notion that the reasons we find it so difficult are not the reasons we have so often resigned ourselves to. That is to say that for most of us, if not all of us, somewhere along the line, we begin to develop a fear of change, a resistance to change, and a perception along with that that change is difficult because things are changing. Change is difficult because things are changing. It's kind of like what I tell people in the relationship seminars about their problem with problems in life. And change is a huge problem for people. And tonight I will suggest to you that the problem we have with change <coughs> is not about change. It's not about the very life force that insists everything, as the Buddha said, is of the nature of impermanence. Therefore, change is part of the sustainability of life in the universe. That our problem with change has nothing to do with change. Our problem with change has to do with the fact that we have a problem with change. That it is our problem. And our perception literally convinces us, especially in those moments when change surfaces so quickly, whether in a tragedy or some kind of unexpected news delivered to us, and we are forced to face that things are now going to change. Especially in those moments, our experiential perception of that our perception literally informs our experience of that. 
And that perception usually is that my life is now all messed up and there's something to be afraid of because you've changed or something out here has changed. But in fact, as children, change never bothered us. We rolled with it, as most children do. It's not until we begin to develop and claim for ourselves certain points of views of life, certain perceptions of life. And when we talk about points of views or perceptions, they're synonymous with saying we develop these opinions about the way life should be. And one of the biggest opinions which literally infects our ability to not only go with the flow as we did as children, but literally infects our ability to see change as the single most <coughs> wonderful gift, if you will, of life. When it comes to us, we often see it as something thwarting, something oppositional, something getting in our way. When in fact, when we see it for what it really is, it is opportunity. But the single perception that literally infects our ability to see that at the moment of change has to do with the false notion. And the operative word here is false notion. That we, somewhere along the line, get convinced, either through our cultural, social, political, possibly religious conditioning, that safety and security is of the nature of permanence. That somehow we can construct the world, our world, in such a way that we can be safe. You know and there's two problems with that perception. One, that's a lie. Okay? And as a nation, we woke up to that you know, on September 11th that there is no, no safe anywhere on, on the planet. You know, we used to think not on our shores until then. So one, that's a lie. Two, there's something to be afraid of is another lie. There's something to be afraid of is the other lie. That the boogeyman really does exist. So the way I often do it, you know, over the years talking about this, is I talk, you know, I, I challenge people to consider this reality, to consider this question. And you've heard me say this hundreds of times, and possibly tonight you're going to get to hear me say it for the first time. And for those of you who get to hear me say it for the first time, just ask these guys behind me, they'll tell you we're tired of listening to them say it. But I will say it again. Guess what I'm going to say? <laughs> You and I are going to die. And there's no getting around it. It's coming. It's inevitable. It's so inevitable that you need to get it that it is hardwired that way. It is designed that way. And that's not the bad news. The bad news is, as I tell my students, we haven't a clue when. So when we talk about constructing our lives, there are several things we need to see here. One, 
There's no safety from that. So no matter how hard we work at trying to make our life safe and secure, we can't. And second, there's nothing to be afraid of. If it's hardwired that way, what is there to be afraid of? So third, the third part of the question is, if you're going to die, and you are, what are you trying to protect? What are you trying to protect? So when we inquire into the essence of those questions, it's not some kind of, if you will, cognitive effort. It's not some kind of where we debated and you're right and I'm wrong. I know I'm right about death, okay? And you should know that too. So it's kind of like gravity. You know, gravity does not need my agreement with that. So I'm going to assume we can all agree that with all of our efforts, and not only our efforts, I want you to really look and consider the energy and time in its various forms, because we, we need to talk about change in its most profound and in its more subtle, because change is happening often, regularly, continually, at a more subtle uh, level, if you will. Right now, parts, right now, whether you know it or not, the time it took you to get from your location to here, a lot of you have already died, you're saying. And by that I mean a lot of the body has died. In a 24-hour span, we know that the body sitting here in this room today is not the one that was sitting at Stockton University around this time last night, they're saying. Blood cells are burning out, brain cells are changing, this is changing, that's changing, and that is so all over the place. What we woke up to a couple days ago in the quote the first day of spring certainly did not look like the week or two before that. Everything is of the nature of impermanence, and everything is constantly changing. It's happening right under our noses all the time. And that's usually how change is affecting life. And then we have those more profound moments of change where it is kind of like dashed at us, thrown right at us. And whether on the subtle, when we stop to think about change, or on the profound, what always rises within us is this fear of change, this resistance of change. And that fear of change, I want to really make clear for everyone tonight, that resistance to change is part of our conditioning. It's part of our learned response to change in our life, to changes in our life. Somewhere along the line, you and I both, everyone, no one can escape it, develops a fear of change in the same way that someone develops an appetite for a particular kind of wine. After drinking that particular kind of wine in the proper environment, you know, we, we tend to think that, you know, when we drink wine, for example, it's just the grape, but when you look at the bureaucracy of, of the ego, in those moments when it likes something, whether it's wine or, or a good movie or the weather, the mind is reconstructing that ex initial experience of that. 
So you need to see this for yourself. The mind is literally in that moment when you taste that wine and you like it and you remember that fragrance and you say, wow, this is such a good bottle of wine. What is going on really there is that the mind is recalling an initial experience that is made up of variables beyond the grape. Perhaps the first time you had that glass of wine, you were in love. She's been gone for many years, but you were in love then. And she's gone, but the wine stayed. That's it. Like that. And so the mind grabs onto that flavor, grabs onto that experience. Likewise, what we may call the negative experiences in our life function in the same way. Our fear of change is something we learned initially somewhere in our life and cultivated and nurtured from that moment forward. And so that our reaction is just that. Our reaction to change has nothing to do with even the changing, the components of the change in the moment at all. It has everything to do with this mechanical response to change that somewhere we learned in the past and have habitually reacted to change that way since then and become familiar with that reaction. So that's why people, and I'm going to cut you off the past because someone tonight will certainly remind me, well, it's normal, isn't it? You see? To react is normal. But the grounds for that reaction, the components that make up that reaction, is quite abnormal. Every other species on the planet, you know, I often say when, when the snow came that we had here, where, you know, it's this year a little bit, but in past seasons, past years, it's been so bad where literally we had to dig ourselves out the front door of the main building. And I often say that, you know, in, when we get those big storms here, one of the things that I notice is that, you know, we're panicking about what we're going to do, how we're going to get out, how we're going to get on the road, how dangerous it is, and the squirrels are just hopping along, <laughs> you know, and the birds are just coming down and taking the seeds and so forth. I've never seen a neurotic squirrel about the weather, you know, or a neurotic deer about you know one or two inches on the road. We hear one inch of snow, we panic, you know, and our and our fear of life has gotten to such a degree that we have to know ahead of time so that when the weatherman gets it wrong, we want to kill that guy, you know, say, you know, because he's made it so unsafe for us. That's how insane fear operates in us, whether we are aware of it or not. And all of that is a learned response to life. Our fear of change, our difficulty with change in life, exists in two domains for us. It is, first of all, a primordial response. And by primordial, I mean there are certain changes in life, tragedy, for example, when we suddenly, tragically lose someone, as I did, when my brother died in 1985, when we lose someone we love to some you know, mysterious disease or some tragic accident or something of that sort, those type of changes, our reaction to that are primordial because we are designed for survival, not only our own survival, but the survival of those we feel a connection with, whether biological or emotional and so forth. And the other domain, 
which is the domain we are more regularly operating out of, and that is our perceived fears. We automatically, I want you to just see this for yourself and not just hear me say it. When change happens for you and you don't see it coming, whether it's subtle or profound, but let's stick with the subtle for now. When change happens for you and you don't see it coming, what is your automatic response? What is your automatic response? That is to say, recall the last time something changed in your life unexpectedly, and what was the first thought you had about it? And I guarantee you that that thought was something like, here comes trouble. Here comes something I may not be able to handle. Immediately, ego goes to the lowest denominator. Immediately. Okay? Immediately. And that is a learned reaction. That is a learned reaction to what is really going on in the moment. Change is the life force. If things don't change, they die sooner than later. If the body does not change, if we do not age, we <coughs> die sooner than later. If we do not get ill and discard what is within us making us ill, the body gets sicker and dies sooner than later. Change is the life force of all living forms on the planet. It is the life force of the planet itself. There's a reason the seasons change. It's not just for Hallmark cards. There's a reason the seasons change. And in seasonal changes, the process is always the same, and it's a natural process. When was the last time we got so frantic seeing the leaves fall off the trees in the fall. And when those leaves fall off the trees in the fall, those leaves and that tree, as we knew it prior to that moment, has changed. We can say it has died. And when spring comes, a new tree, a new part of that tree's life has been born, has been born. Change is as natural as spring to summer, summer to fall, fall to winter, and so forth as the cycle continues and has run that way, as far as we know, for millions of years. But for the human being, and again, not always, when we are young, when we are children, change doesn't seem to affect us that much. There are those little minor reactions when Again, we will get to this part of what our problem with change is. Has to do with our resistance. Has to do with, again, where as children, yeah, we may have resisted our parents telling us, you have to stop doing that and start doing this, and so forth. And for us, that was a kind of change. But it, all the evidence shows that it is in our adult stage of our life where we fear change most of all. And as I said a few moments ago, what I want you to open yourself to is the possibility that our reaction to change 
that fear and that resistance has to do with not the change itself, not that something has changed and we are suffering now because this has changed, but rather we are suffering now because our perception of the way things should continue to be will not allow us to not only embrace the change, but again go with the flow. And the flow is always taking us in the same direction. Renewal and preparation for what's next. Preparation for what's next. Reality, as we talk about it in Zen, exists in two domains. Being, which is this moment now, and becoming. We are all perfectly complete now and always becoming more of that perfection and completion. And that's another reality of change when we look at it in the natural world. The seasons change and nature's process of change where you know, the plant life, you know, the leaves fall off the tree, the colors of the trees and the leaves change, this, the cold comes followed by the warmth and all of that is again a life force of, for, for the purpose of sustainability. The natural world is sustained by these weather changes. Likewise, the changes in our life, right perception, which is what the Buddha talked about in the Eightfold Noble Path towards cessation from suffering, he began with having right view. He says to us that our suffering is not because of what's going on, as I've been saying so far tonight, but because our perception of what is going on, which is a function of our learned experience and attachments, our perception of what is going on will not permit us to be okay with this, will not permit us to find contentment with this, and to embrace it and experience it in a way that it is intended for us. Change is intended to benefit us. Change is intended as a benefit for us. But again, often we view change as this horrible interruption or opposition to our life, not because it necessarily is. Certainly there are some changes that are, and we need to you know, respond appropriately there. But most of the changes that we find ourselves on a daily basis constantly anxious about, constantly stressed out about, even in the way she's behaving with us or the way he's acting towards us. We, you know, he's changed, you know. Of course he's changed. That's what he does, he changes. And so does she. Everything changes, you see. But we get stressed out about that. And it's not because he or she has changed that's the problem. The problem is our resistance to change. And our resistance to change is a function of our perception. And our perception, as the Buddha talked about, right view and right understanding in the first of the Eightfold Noble Path, our perception is wrong view of things. So again, back to the analogy that I use in the relationship seminars 
when we talk, there's a part in the seminar about, you know, dealing with problems. You know, so the Buddha says, life is suffering. He could have very well said, life is problematic. There will be problems in your relationships. That's one of the first things you need to know in creating sustainable relationships. There are going to be problems. And as I tell, you know, couples often who have taken the seminars, that the problem you have with problems is not because of the problems. The problems you have with problems because you have a problem with problems. <laughs> so the problem we have with change is not because of change, but because we don't like it, we don't want it. And the reasons we don't like it, and the reasons we don't want it, have no real basis, have no reality. We believe, for example, that if things don't change, everything's cool, you know, and that we're safe. It's safer if things just stay the way they should be, you say. It's kind of like, you know, those of us who, you know, on occasion talk about the good old days. Remember the good old days? And one of the questions I often, because that's my job to just insert these things that upset people. So I often insert, for who? For who? You know, you know, coming, being a child of the 50s and the 60s. Remember those days? They were great. For some, you're saying. But we are always, and that's part of this bureaucracy of ego, the ego is always creating for me, as well as for you, a perception that is exclusive. You see? That is exclusive. Likewise, in the course of our lifetime, we develop, and once developed, we nurture and cultivate these, <coughs> false, these false perceptions about change, as well as these false perceptions about security, and having things exactly the way they should be, or the way we want them to be, as some kind of magical cure to the world. If only everybody would act alike. Boring. One of the things I adore about my five-year-old is she behaves entirely like herself. That's what I'm attracted to. I mean, you know, I, you know, she looks like me, talks like me, acts like me, sometimes she even thinks like me. You know, she'll tell me that. But there's still something about her when she doesn't want to listen to me that I adore. You know? That's what makes it fun. You see? But I have been up in, you know, in parenting seminars that I've created up against parents who absolutely want their kids to be their image and their likeness. And then they wonder why they suffer so much. <laughs> you know, because the last thing you're ever going to get any kid to do is to be you. you know it's just plain stupid to shoot for that. You know That's been my experience and so forth. Any questions? <coughs> Positive or negative, both are mere perceptions of the change. There is no such thing as positive change or negative change. There's just change. And again, mind is projecting onto that the positive or negative, 
One person's positive change may be another person's negative change. How can that be? It's either positive or negative, correct? But no, when you understand that my projection of positive change or negative change is just that, my projection, my perception. So where we want to go with this, in, in again, when applying the, the essence of Zen teachings, there is this term of equanimity, where we hold all change equally, where we don't attach negative or positive to it. That's not easy. Well, who said it would be? <laughs> you know? It's, it, life is not easy, okay? And, and, and so that's exactly the point. That's what our desire towards security is about. The stuff that's familiar to us, that's easy, isn't it? Okay? It's, and that's all part of the problem with change. Because as you've often heard me say, Ellen, and we've been friends for how many years? So you must have heard me say this once or twice, okay? That we are all addicted to comfort. We're all addicted to the easy path, the same. And it's our addiction to that, is what I'm saying tonight, that makes the negative change, okay? And we can say negative. I mean, I view certain things as negative change also. You know, I don't like what this change is, you know? I, I view it that way also. As long as I know, it's kind of like the Zen teaching on lying, all right? The Zen teaching on lying is this. To not lie is not to always tell the truth. To not lie is to know when you're lying. Okay? So to when change happens, and I call it a negative change, it's okay to do that as long as I understand that that doesn't mean anything, except to me, except to me. So when we move from either negative or positive, again, the Buddha taught that our positive attachments, our positive projections are just as dangerous as our negative. Because when we we can't have we can't have the experience of good without the experience of bad. So it's kind of like how the brain works. When you or I approach a stairway, and we are what makes it possible for us to go up that stairway is the brain is projecting going down. It's kind of like a camera that flips the image. Okay. So in order for me to have positive, I need to have negative. So it's kind of like we're either end, there's going to be suffering when we're dealing in the absolutes. Where we want to be is in the middle. This is change. And this time it's difficult. And it don't mean nothing like that. And if we can get that, we can learn how to overcome the difficulty and the next time say, oh yeah, it used to be difficult for me, but not anymore. But we never get to that place because we stick with the positive. See that? How that works? Mm -hmm. I think so. But you don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> Thanks. Anyone else? Uh, I often find myself just just staying today, just give it a little thought, but the thought turns into projection, and that I don't want. 
because it's just in the future and that's kind of false. I mean, that isn't, I don't have any idea of what's going to happen next kind of thing. So I just try to deep breathe, accept it for now, and then let's see how it plays out. Yeah. But, but again, not really att try to attach too much of a negative or, or a positive. And that's it difficult. Really help. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Especially when the change hurts. That's yeah. difficult. For me, too. Okay? And when I said to Ellen, who, who said it wasn't going to be, I didn't mean to be sarc sound sarcastic. What I mean by that is, is that that's, one, that's part of the perception about change we need to fix for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that is the notion, this should be easier than it is. Yeah. So what? See, what I try to teach young people in my talks is that the way you get to realize, one of the four mantras, as you may have heard me talk about, when Katie, my daughter, started to understand language and, and we were able to communicate, I gave her four mantras which she religiously recites every night before we go to bed. I am wonderful, I am beautiful, I am capable, I am loved, okay? And the I am capable comes up all day, okay? All day. And so when she gets to that place, like we adults do on occasion, where we don't like it, I don't know, I can't handle, I don't know if I can do this, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. We'll do an exercise on this tonight in here. I'm training her that if you keep, as I say to my students, enlightenment is always on the immediate other side of the line you keep retreating from, okay? Mm -hmm. And our fear of change is always going to be with us until we cross that line. Mm -hmm. The secret is to show up stammering, weeping, resisting, and just standing in the space that engenders the fear. And if we can do that, learn to do that rather than immediately what our thoughts, like you said, what the mind wants to do is scare us out of it. Because the mind doesn't, the ego wants us to flee. Ego's response to everything is either fight or flight that it perceives as threatening, okay? So it wants you to flee. So it creates these thoughts about the change, about whatever's going on in the moment that causes you to want to flee. The training, and this is why it is difficult, because we have been culturally and socially trained to rely on our feelings and emotions as if they're God's word, mm -hmm. as if they're fact, if you will. But again, when we understand the nature of feelings and emotions and what they really are, they're totally unreliable, especially, especially in negotiating through change, because they are always going to be trying to convince us to flee, to resist what you know, we call negative change. They're always going to be doing that. So the training that we'll talk about a little later on tonight, the training involves not even taking a moment to think about it. Just as you've heard me often say, just take care of business. Discover what is needed and just do it. Mm -hmm. Because the moment we start to think about it, we're going to get afraid of it because that's the nature of the beast. Thank you. Well, I'm 
thinking about what you're saying, my question changes as you say it. But I think we've all had the experience when something negative, something terrible happens, that we wish we could go back and, and it, have it not happen. And I think what you're saying is that it's happened, you can't change what's happened, you just have to learn how to live with what's happened. And not only learn how to live with what's happened, but understand that what's happened, as terrible as it was, as painful as it still is, there's something in its terribleness, something in its pain, that can benefit us if we open ourselves and alter our perception of it. So, for example, in Zen, the teaching is to see all oppositional moments, such as negative change, as Ellen called it, as our teacher. So there's a lesson in the, in the terribleness, there's a lesson in the pain that we uh, forfeit in our efforts to want to try and change what happened, or to skirt it, or avoid it. The training is to walk right through the fire, or as Pema Chodron writes about it in many of her books, she talks about leaning into the fire. When we come upon fire, we want to do this. Freedom is about leaning into the fire. Like managing the change? No, managing your reaction, not your experience. We want to feel the experience. We want to experience the experience because there is a scientific law proven in, in physics that whatever you know, whatever you resist will persist. Mm -hmm. And you resist it long enough, you become. So the practice of leaning into the experience, fully experiencing whatever that pain may be, that fear may be, fully experiencing those emotions. And we can talk about that tonight if we have time, how that technique actually works. Fully experiencing that, what happens is when you fully experience anything, it disappears. It disappears, but not until then. Not until then. So our reoccurring fears in life—the things that keep showing up in our dreams, keep showing up in our daily interaction—we keep coming up with the same. You know, every time we come up against that personality or that place, we tend to get resistance and fearful. Is unfinished business. So you've often heard me, you know, quote the quote, you know, the truth will set you free, but the process will piss you off. There's another part of that. The truth will set you free until it's, but not until it's finished with you. But not until it's finished with you. And not until it's finished with you is that our reoccurring fears that keep showing up in our lives, the stuff that we thought we got over, when they keep showing up as they do, is an indication that there's some unfinished business. You've got some more work with the teacher to do. And if you don't do that, you can't skirt this. You see, you can't skirt this because we, you know, of another law of the universe and fundamental teaching in Buddhism is the law of cause and effect. You can't skip over cause. You can't skip over effect. It's a chain. Okay? It's a chain, and every step we need to walk. So again, we need to 
you know, what I talk about is completing our relationships of the past, because until we complete our relationships of the past, we can't even see our relationships now. Because what we are always seeing in our relationships now are the ones from the past. So one of the most important relationships we talk about in the relationship <coughs> seminars that we need to complete if we are ever going to have any kind of real relationship with another human being is our relationships with, guess who? Self. Huh? Self. No. <laughs> parents. Our relationships with our parents. parents. Until we complete our relationships with our parents, everybody becomes them. <laughs> So if you like them, you, you got to be. If you didn't like them, they're going to show up. You remind me of my father. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you called me. <laughs> so the truth will set you free, but not until it's finished with you. Any other questions? So. The difficulty we have with change has nothing to do with change. Her changing, him changing, life changing, the job changing, whatever it is that's going on in your life tonight that brought you here to talk about and explore this issue of change. The difficulty we have with change is not because of any change actually going on, and whatever that may be for you. It has to do with my perception of the change and my perception of the change is a function of my learned experience in life as well as my learned reaction to change in life. Apart from understanding that, we find ourselves in a serious quandary, in a serious quandary about change. Let me read this to you. From the beginning, the key to renewal has been shedding, the casting off of old skin. The Polynesians say the world began when Tata, their name for the creator, woke to find himself growing inside a shell. He stretched and broke the shell, and the earth was created. Tata kept growing, though and after a time found himself inside another shell. Again, he stretched and broke that shell, and this time the moon was created. Again, Tata kept growing, and again, he found himself contained by yet another shell. This time, the breaking forth created the stars. In this ancient story, the Polynesians have carried for us the wisdom that we each grow in this life by breaking successive shells that the place of God within each of us stretches until there's no room to be, and then the world as we know it must be broken so that we can be born anew. In this way, life becomes a living of who we are until that form of self can no longer hold us, and like Tata, in his shell, we must break the forms that contain us in order to birth our way into the next self. This is how we shed our many ways of seeing the world. Not that any are false, but that each serves its purpose for a time until we grow 
and they no longer serve us. I have lived through many selves, the first of me, so eager to be great, to set things ablaze, shunned everything that was ordinary. I hunted the burn of a champion's hip and wanted to be a great musician too, to be famous and extraordinary. But as I grew, the notion of fame left me lonely in the night. Thrones, no matter how pretty, have only room for one. It's a great line. Isn't it? Yeah. The second of me wanted to be covered by waves, inhale the stars, and move like a song. Now I wanted to be the great music itself, but to be the great thing was still as lonely as it was magnificent. The third of me gave up on greatness. It was how I let others draw close. I asked more questions, not really interested in answers, but more the face below the face about to speak. And then during my cancer experience, there came yet another self. There, bent and distorted in the hospital chrome as the late sun flooded my pillow. I was dead in the chrome, alive on the pillow, a quiet breath between dead, alive, all at once. And oddly, it did not scare, for I felt the pulse of life in the quiet breath, and the place to which I transcended is here. Almost dying was another shell I had to break. It has led me to realize that each self unfolds just one concentric womb in route to another, each encompassing the last. I would believe in arrival, but for all of the arrivals, I have broken on the way. So one of the other false perceptions that literally informs our fear of change has to do with the notion that we are at this moment all that we are ever are going to be. That we have these fixed identities we call myself, we call me, we call I. But from the Buddhist perspective, the truth is quite the opposite that this lifetime we exist in now is merely, as I talked about it at Stockton University last night, a continuum of a beginningless and endless changing and transforming of being at one moment and always becoming. So that this lifetime, as some philosophers have referred to it, is just a stepping stone, that we are just passing through on to something more and larger than this small self that either tragically goes through this lifetime afraid of life and afraid of the changes that are designed into this life toward that, if you will, endless ends, if you will, the real plan, the real mission, if you will, of all life forces, and we, when we get fixed in the notion, and I notice this you know, in my own inquiry as a monk for 40 years, you know, again, looking at the, the, the mind of adults, it, it's a tragedy, and again, in medical science, more and more they're looking at this component 
when they explore the causes for Alzheimer and dementia. And what they're learning more and more and more is that you know, a lot of the states of mind someone with dementia and Alzheimer can be traced to this notion that there's nothing more to learn, that there's no more growing to do, you see? And that happens to so many of us. Probably some of us in this room have resolved that my life is getting up in the morning, going to work, coming home, paying the bills, getting up in the morning, going to work, coming home, and an occasional this and that and this and that. And when was the last time we really, really, uh, you know, learned something really new? And we don't need to take a college course to do that. Because every moment, every morning when you wake up, every morning when you wake up is a new morning. There's never been another morning like that. And every time you see that spouse, that friend, that loved one, that sibling, it's like the first time <coughs> when you understand both the science and the Buddhist perspective behind all of that, that every nail is unique unto itself. Because everything is of the nature of impermanence. It is constantly in this changing flow of birth and death, 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 and so forth. And that the attitude to where, again, change becomes our greatest teacher, provides us, is one, again, as I referred to a moment ago, where the difficult moments in life, if we can choose, and we can't learn this, because after a lifetime of unlearning this, the difficulty is in trying to learn it. So, there's a, so I want to really make a difference between choosing to and learning something. Because one of the problems with all spiritual practice that I have found in my efforts to convey to people, you need to get into this training and you need to train and convince them about that, is that we have this notion that we're going to, you know, just tug along until we get ready to do this. And it doesn't work that way. Life doesn't work that way. When I look at the defining moments in my life, the stuff that literally moved me from this place that I may have been anchored in too long to where I needed to be, to be here with you tonight in the role that I've been playing for 35, 30 of the 40 years of my life as a monk, it has always been those moments, those <coughs> changing moments that has shoved me ahead, that, I, that have been difficult to ride on. But, you know, the energy, the force, the, the angel, the God, whatever metaphor works for you, doesn't care. It's like, time to move. You know, I can remember, as a, what I mean by that is, is I can remember being um, in, uh, on an island in Southeast Asia once, and there was this huge sudden um, they called it, um, not a hurricane, they called it um, thrall, thrall, Typhoon. no, it was a thrall, thrall, squall. squall, it was a squall, that's like a tornado coming through, and this squall was coming, and I didn't never see it, it was the first time I've ever been in a company with a squall, and there was this old guy standing next to me, and he knew what it was, he could hear it coming, 
And I was just kind of, wow, this is like interesting what's happening here. And he grabbed my shoulder and said, time to move. <laughs> and just drug me, you know, down to safety and what have you. And it is those moments when life says, time to move, that really make the difference. And they are the more difficult ones. Because we're either not ready to move, we either are, we find ourselves paralyzed and we don't know how to move, but they are our greatest teachers, as we say in Zen. And so if we are, if you're listening to anything I've been talking about so far tonight, it is our perception which is, which involves also our learned reaction to change that literally causes the suffering the anxiety and the stress. And the only solution to transforming that is to apply a, if you will, a opposite reaction or response by just applying it. You can't learn into this. You can't kind of like get into it. You know, like step one. <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way. Because for most of us, if we, lie, if we set up steps one, two, three, and four, most of us never get beyond two. Because, oh, I'm going to go back to the sofa. <laughs> you know, it's like that. You know, see, it's kind of like the, uh, on our Facebook page one day, I was writing about, uh, again, you know, starting a spiritual practice. And um, so I wrote, step one, drop all excuses. <clears throat> step two, there is no step two until you've mastered step one. Okay? And life is like that. And to really change our inherent ability. We are creatures of change. We are designed for change. Otherwise we'd be these little embryos talking back and forth to each other. You know? We're designed for change. We've been changing forever. And we're going to continue to change. So we are hardwired to change. It's not like we don't know how to do this stuff. We know how to change. We just, somewhere in our life, that knowledge, that Buddha nature, that inherent wisdom for change gets thwarted and covered over and suppressed by you know, our fears and, and false perceptions. So the root cause is our false perceptions. And if you want to change any part of the tree, you need to get to the root where the illness is and deal with that and change the root cause. Otherwise, nothing changes. Anyone? Realizing I had to take an inventory, I had to see how I got my own way. 
And, and I like that word inventory, and a word that I think synonymous with that, which I'd like to uh, talk about, is the heat also has to do with our priorities, okay? So taking inventory, and we'll talk about that as one of the steps towards cultivating the ground for changing our perceptions of change, has to do with taking inventory, has to do with our priorities. And again, one of the core issues in teaching authentic spirituality, and for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about authentic spirituality, uh, for 30-some years I have said that what I am is a myth buster on spirituality because I'm, in, I'm very oppositional to what's being sold out there as spiritual and which has nothing to do with spirituality. And one of the examples of that has to do with the purpose of spirituality, has to do with what we've been talking about tonight, you know, cultivating and awakening our inherent design for life, not the image we want life to be. You know, we need to get back to God created us in her image and likeness, and it's not about creating God in our, her image, you know, our image and likeness, you see. So there's a clear design that I made reference to a moment ago that this is not about me. And the me that has this idea of what life should be like, you see. And that real happiness, and spirituality is the means in which we accomplish this, real happiness, the kind of happiness where we are able to feel contentment no matter the circumstance and situation, is a function with what some people say, get with the program, you know, see? And, you know, so it's, it's kind of like, you know, someone once said to me, uh, you know, the reason why God doesn't answer is because God doesn't care about your program, you see? That there's, he's on a completely different program than you're on, different, different channel. And, 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 the, and again, as a Buddhist, this is what the Buddha was talking about. That in order to realize one's Buddha nature, we need to awaken to reality and function from a place of reality. And when we, when we do that, the first thing the Buddha talks about in that is impermanence. You can't get with the program unless you get with change, you see. You can't get with the program unless you get with change because it's not like it's a philosophy, you know? It's not like I, I've been talking about Buddhist philosophy tonight called change. There is no such thing as Buddhist philosophy, but there is a thing called change. Whether you're a Buddhist or not, change is inherent in life. It exists for a reason. It's part of that design. And the two stories that I've shared with you so far this evening, you know, using the mythological stories of different cultures that have looked at this, both point to the same thing. You know, it has to do with growing into this more that we are, that we never consider we are, because somewhere in the course of our life, we get complacent, we get lazy, we get unexcited. You know, one of the reasons why as children and they grow so fast. Those of you who have, have kids know what I'm talking about. My daughter is like growing at the speed of light. And I don't mean physically alone. 
Gospels. And it's amazing to watch. And one of the reasons they do that is that they don't have a problem with what we're talking about tonight. That they are, they are <coughs> curious about everything. Well, I don't know if I want to go there. Uh, are you sure you want to go there? Is how adults talk about it. Oh, I don't know. Not them. She wants, to, she wants to smell it, taste it, feel it, roll in it, <laughs> sleep with it. You know what I'm saying? And that's one of the problems that, you know, that significantly for us that gets in the way of, of change and, and being able to go with the ride when it comes because we see it as oppositional. As children, we, we know what it is. We know that if we don't, I mean, just watch them. I was, I was at a dance class today and I get to wait in this room and you know, I need to just sidestep for a moment because I do have this beef. Women are sexist. They really are. They talk about men being sexist, but every time I go to dance class, it's a room full of mothers, and they think they are the, 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 the cat's meow with their girls in there, you see. But I sidestep, you know. So, but there was this one uh, young mother with, uh, waiting for her daughter in the dance class with my daughter, and she had a cute little boy. Uh, he was so adorable, this kid. Couldn't have been any taller than that. And him and I were kind of connecting and communicating. And he just wanted to touch everything. And she just like pulling him back. <laughs> and he wanted to touch everything. And he had this finger and he was touch, 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 you know. And I let him touch me and, and we touched the wall, we touched the window together. And, but there was no stopping him. When she tried to stop him, <laughs> you know, there was no stopping him. We are afraid to touch anything, you see. And that's when we start to get old and age fast and get cranky and grumpy and so forth. So as children, we, you know, that's why, you know, again, so many from Jesus to Buddha points back to the childlikeness, the childlike mind, the beginner's mind, as we talk about it in Zen, as essential. You know, that curiosity. If we can approach all change, even at the difficult times, when we calm down with, the, with this pain that's involved with it and take a second look and now take that breath and we'll do that exercise later tonight. Take that breath and then be willing to look that, you know, again in Tibetan Buddhism they call it inviting the demon in and sitting down with the demon at the table and looking eye to eye and discovering <coughs> what the demon needs and feeding the demon rather than casting it out. Let's see. If we can learn to just look into, uh, you know, the abyss, it eventually looks back at us, and we can learn something from that. I Is it wise to prepare for change? If you mean prepare in the sense of, again, you know, I, I look at my training to be mindful of my initial reaction to sudden change. And that's a training to do that in order to deal with it. Then if that's what you're talking about, yes. But to prepare for change as if by preparing it I can avoid it? No. Change is like a, a river. You know, we can put a dam up, we can even you know, redirect it, but that water is going to reach its highest level. 
And again, stop aging. <laughs> you know, stop the process. Like I tell people, the bus is going, the, the the bus is going to the same place, no matter what route it's on, the cemetery. Okay, that flow, that route, when we see that for what it really is, liber can liberate us from our fear of change. Literally, one of my teachers, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, called death the great liberator. He wasn't talking about the temple death. He was talking about how when you really resolve death as your destination, no matter how safe, secure, and protected you've designed your life to be, it literally can transform your experience for life in ways that nothing else can. You know, again, for me as a parent, uh, I've applied my own training and teachings to parenting. And when I pause in those stressful moments with my daughter, when she's resisting and so forth, when I pause and apply the contemplation of death and dying, particularly hers, it transforms what I'm prepared to do in that moment immediately. Immediately. You know, for parents to say, I just can't, I just want to strangle them. Well, i got a solution for you. In that moment, think of them gone. Any questions? So we'll take a brief intermission. Let you intermission. <laughs> and come back and we'll talk about the solution to the cause. Thank you. Zen, we make no distinction between what, again, we find in the culture of faith-based traditions in the West. We make no distinction between <coughs> spirituality and daily life, everyday life. Uh, I can recall one of my first trips to Japan uh, asking a question about this. And uh, I had asked someone, you know, what their spiritual, you know, spirituality was about, their religion was, and they looked at me and said, everything is about spirituality, everything, everything, everything. And so, when we talk about the application of the fundamental teachings of living a Zen-inspired life to daily living, they have the same purpose and objective as a monk understands them, as a priest understands them, as a student of Zen understands them. And the singular objective for our conversation tonight, and the singular objective for the, uh, for the techniques and solutions we're going to talk about now in a few moments, are all the same. The singular objective of any authentic spiritual practice has to do with recognizing the fear that is at the ground of our existence 
and discovering the means of dismantling that fear. Or the short version of that is the elimination of a fear-driven life. Fear literally, literally, when it is informing our experience, literally prohibits not only our ability to live life fully, but literally, literally determines or predetermines for us um, the quality of our experience of life. So that is to say that when I am going through life fearful of change, uh, it not only affects my ability to navigate through changes, but it also informs what I am permitted to experience from moment to moment. It informs not only what I will experience, but what I am also permitted to experience. So as I said before the intermission, so often we assume, and we assume a lot as adult human beings, and part of the retraining has to do with learning to stop assuming. In fact, mindfulness living has to do with stop assuming. So we assume that the feelings and emotions and the thoughts involved from moment to moment as part of our reaction to the stimulus, we assume that they are uh, reliable, we assume that they are fact-based, we assume this automatically, and that is why we find ourselves so easily shooting from the hip. We, you know, stimulus response, stimulus reaction, stimulus reaction, stimulus reaction. In applying the principles of Zen training or living a Zen-inspired life, we, when we study the mind and the nature of how mind processes experiences in life, there is stimulus, that is to say, something going on out here that you know, causes a stimulus. There is obviously response or reaction, but there is also a third component. And the third component has to do with the space between stimulus response. There is stimulus, there is a space <coughs> between our response that again, unless you seriously train in meditation, we're never aware of. We, f we experience life stimulus reaction, stimulus reaction, stimulus re reaction. When you slow that process down through meditation and mindfulness techniques, you become aware that there's a space between stimulus and response. For the trainee, the student of Zen, the training is about becoming intimately familiar with that space. Because every answer and solution is in that space. It is that space that provides us, and you need to hear this, because we, one of the other things we assume, especially as Americans, is that we are free making our own choices. And that's a lie. I know of no other way of just saying it, but just putting that out there. Uh, most of us haven't a clue of what free will really feels like because it is that space between stimulus and reaction that allows for real freedom, 
allows for choosing. And so if all we're doing is reacting to stimulus, that's all mechanical stuff. That's all conditional stuff. Until we learn how to function, navigate with stimulus-based response, and we become intimately familiar with that space and intimately aware that there is a choice there that does not exist here or here. Uh, there's no such thing as free will. Uh, it doesn't exist for any of us. The choice that is part of that whole idea and notion of freedom and free will takes place before the reaction. So, uh, and again, as I often talk about it, when I talk about our definition of freedom in, in the United States is not the real definition of freedom. The real definition of freedom is the ability to remain contented and grounded, and I would add true to your principles, no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation. So freedom, the way we often define it is to say what we want and do what we want, no matter the circumstances and no matter the consequences. And that's not real freedom. That's all mechanical, habitual, you know, stuff where we are stimulus response, stimulus response, stimulus response, like a machine. Stimulus response, stimulus response, stimulus response. So the solution to all suffering, the solution to managing stress, if you will, the solution to managing anxiety is, involves becoming intimately familiar with the space between stimulus and response. So if the stimulus is an unexpected set of circumstances calling, calling for immediate change, and the reaction or the experience of that is stress and anxiety of, of that, uh, there's an opportunity when you train in this, there is an opportunity to respond with what the Buddha would call a more skillful response and one that resolves the fear for us. When we're simply doing this, it's all fear. Stimulus response, stimulus response, stimulus response, stimulus response. It's all fear and it's all about <coughs> fear. It's not until we can stop that process, thwart it, take a moment to experience that space that we are able to make a real choice to break the cycle of our learned and habitual reaction. And that's what training is about. Training is about breaking the cycle of our poor or negative behavior, habitual behaviors, that repeatedly get us back into suffering and anxiety. And you know the way most of us try to do it is that we continue to habitually react and respond to those stimuluses in our life that we may call negative or bad, and we continually react the same way we always have and try to peanut butter it over or, or something like that. Um, and like I tend to ask, how's that working for you? You see. And so the solution is to recognize our habitual learned reactions to the stimuli or stimulus, if you will, to recognize that that is the way I've always reacted to this. Whenever this comes up, I react the same way. And to understand that the only solution to ever changing that 
is the very thing we're afraid of, changing that. Let's say, changing that. Change is the only thing that brings about change. Change is the only thing that brings about change. If you want to change your life, you need to change. Then change your life. Works for me. I love this uh, writing by Nipa. I love all his writings, but this one's cute. There are two ways to feel wind. Climb into the open and be still, or keep moving. Everyone alive embodies both being and doing. The wind we create by running is the energy of becoming, and the wind that comes to us by stilling ourselves is the energy of being. Being human, there are endless times we need to be still and as many times that we need to move. But much of our confusion as modern citizens comes from trying to have the one we are more comfortable with substitute for the other. Those of us who struggle with being still often can't find the native wind, while those of us uncomfortable with living in the world can retreat into stillness that is open but often void of the energy of living. Yet these concerns are more seamless than how we tend to discuss them. My godson Eli captured the oneness of being and becoming when going for a walk the autumn he was six. He and his father were standing in an open field bordered with maples and willows when a wind lifted through. It so excited Eli that he began to twirl and spin and run with his, with his arms wide through the uh, brightened trees. Out of breath and stunned, he tugged at his father's sleeve, exclaiming, Daddy, Daddy, if you run too fast, you can't tell what's real. Amazingly, there is great insight in children and great innocence. They carry a wisdom they often live but seldom know. Ironically, we spend our lives trying to regain that treasured state where being and doing are inseparably one. Daddy, daddy, if you run too fast, you can't see what is real. And so it is in the practice of slowing down and entering into stillness, we get to see the real, the reality. If you're constantly running, doing, going, as I often talk about it in relationship again to this whole notion of you know, the, the principles of, of our n national identity as Americans, you know, the, we, are, we are taught by the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence that each of us are endowed by God with inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And after 200 or 300 years, however long it's been, we have mastered, mastered the pursuit of happiness, yet know very little about life, living it, and truly about freedom. And the reason for that is that we are also always so caught up in pursuing and very little time 
taken in being. As, as people, as human beings of, of, of the West, we know a lot about doing, but very little about being. And if you were listening to Nepo's words just now, uh, the solution is in the balance. Again, once again, it's in the space between being and doing. And so in order to resolve or find a solution for the fear that runs us, and literally, if you listened, predetermines for us not only what we will experience when change comes, but what we are permitted to experience. Because again, the fear has already set us up for tragedy, has already convinced us when, you know, when fear shows up in our body and we initially react as if there's a real threat, okay, before knowing how to stop and examine the threat. I mean, millions and millions of American men and women have lost their lives because of this practice, you know, over senseless wars that should have never happened, if any of them had any sense. But I digress for a moment, but not really. Uh, if we can learn and train in pausing to look before we leap, if you will, uh, there's, always, there's always the guarantee of a different outcome. And again, as we talked about before the break, I've given you certain clues that the pausing happens by first being willing or creating the willingness to change our perception of change. Change does not show up in our lives as oppositional to our life. That's the first perception. We need to stop seeing change as oppositional. Just as I tell people in relationship seminars, we need to stop seeing problems in the relationship as oppositional if we, can, if we are ever going to expect any real change in the relationship. So a sustainable relationship, for example, is a function of all parties agreeing that when problems show up in the relationship, they're not oppositional to the relationship. And that's the only context where resolving problems is possible. That's the only context where resolving problems become possible, when we stop seeing those problems as oppositional to either me or you or the relationship. Remember, there's always three people in the relationship. There's you, there's him or her, and the relationship, okay? Or the space that the relationship exists in. Likewise, in our relationship with life, when change shows up, either subtle or suddenly, when change shows up, we need to cut off the, the head of the snake that bites us and convinces us that the change is oppositional. And we need to replace that perception <coughs> with our beginner's mind or childlike, if you will, wisdom. There's something to be learned here. Change merely means it's time to grow. It's time to move. The dissatisfaction we find on a regular basis in our lives, the kind that Thoreau talked about when he said, you know, living quiet lives, you know, living lives of quiet desperation. 
that kind of dissatisfaction is, an, is indicative of a life that has stopped growing. And a life that has stopped growing is a life that has learned to drop anchor and resist change. I say. Change, when it shows up, is the teacher saying, it's time to change. It's time to change. And there's a lesson on the best way for you to do that for your life right now and others. And so when we change our perception of change and view it as a benefit for us, you know, as a teacher for us, and learn the lesson, uh, when we approach it that way, we find that the energy generated by fear starts to change also, you're saying. Well, the way most of us try to do it is that we're filled with this fear and we're trying to be patient, and that doesn't work, okay? We want to transform the experience we are calling fear, if you will, and the way we transform that is by pulling on the reins of the horse that wants to take off running and change our perception, our attitude towards what has just been presented. And instead of seeing it as oppositional or threatening or reason to defend ourselves, see it as an opportunity to learn something here, a lesson that not only we must learn but again, the law of physics tells us whatever you resist will persist. The lesson must be learned. The truth will set you free when it's finished with you, you know, say, but not until then. So most of us, when we're honest in the private sessions I do in counseling, talk about regularly the reoccurring issues. Still fighting over the same stuff. We're still this, we're still that. I'm still unable to the, and it keeps coming back because that's the nature of the beast. We cannot graduate without attending class. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. You're saying. So we start to slow down because if you keep running so fast, you can't see reality. So there is no way I am going to even consider the possibility of there being a value in this very frightening experience until I slow down. And the process or the technique uh, we'll, we'll talk about in a moment, using the breath to literally slow ourselves down. But what is important is to commit to the next time the threat, the perceived threat or real threat shows itself that before reacting, we stop, take that breath, and slow down and look first before we leap. Look first before we leap. Now, what precedes that, what is necessary, has to do with what I mentioned earlier when I talked about priorities. If my priority is to be with the program of life, which is to become whatever that mysterious becoming is, because we don't know what it is, you know, and, and you know, you'll need to come back to talk about the consciousness of unknowing. 
because that's the consciousness of the universe. The consciousness of unknowing is the consciousness of the universe, consciousness of God. So it's kind of like if you've ever read the story Job, and I've read it a hundred times, the best line of the story is at the end when this God's best friend, who he lets the devil just destroy him, you know, just to prove a point to the devil, you know, faces God at the end. I love the story. I always struggle. You know, Job's like, okay, all right. See, I remain faithful. Now, what was this all about? And God just simply says, no, your business. You know. <laughs> Where were you when I created the universe? What makes you think you deserve an answer? Uh, but I'm your best friend. Yeah, I know. None of your business. <laughs> Let's go have a beer. Yeah. It's cool. And that's the consciousness of the universe. You're never going to know, so stop trying to know. What do you think knowing's going to do? It's not going to change anything. I'm saying. So when we open ourselves to being responsible for, again, and this is where priorities come in. <coughs> For me, the singular priority in everything that I do has to do with that consciousness of enlightenment. It has to do with being enlightened. And being enlightened has to do with being. Being. Has nothing to do with doing. Has to do with being. Choosing to be present, to be in. Last night again at Stockton University, when I talked about you know the components of uh, end-of-life care and and you know, dealing with a loved one who's dying, uh, you know, we talked about the whole issue of presence is, is, is everything. Presence is everything. So if I am ever going to die to my old habitual ways, I need to be present to the stuff going on in the moment. And so if I'm ever going to be free, I need to die to my old habitual ways. If I'm ever going to grow, I need to stop being like a kid. You know, I need to stop being stuck in that mentality and grow and do whatever it takes to grow. So priorities informs my ability to change my perception about uh, change as oppositional and a willingness to take time to become familiar with the change and the components that's going on in the lesson. And then I'm able to do all the other things. When you talk about applying that context, and that's what that is, it's a context for living. When you talk about applying that context, the content of your life starts to look like this. We have, again, as a culture, because, and again, you need to look at the priorities in the business world. In the business world, you know, within the last 30, 35, maybe 40 years, somewhere around there, this whole concept of multitasking came up. And people were trained to multitask, you see. And they're multitasking and getting nothing out of it, you see, except maybe profit for the, for the business, if you will. But is there satisfaction? Not too many people that I talk about who are even masters at multitasking will tell you there's much satisfaction. Mm -hmm. They're just getting the job done. They're, getting the, they're taking care of what needs to be taken care of. In Zen, when we talk about your life, and if you're trying to live a life that is fulfilling by multitasking, you're out of luck. You're saying. So the first step to cultivating mindfulness in your life has to do with learning how to do one thing at a time. 
Now, learning how to do one thing at a time can sometimes look like, you know, getting up in the morning, getting breakfast together for the kids, and there's six of them running all over the place, and you need to also get them together to get to school and so forth. But in the midst of that chaotic experience, <coughs> while you're telling Susan to do this and Johnny to do that and so forth, you're preparing the meal, but your approach to preparing the meal is a single attitude approach. You are with it. Now, one example that when I was thinking about my own personal example that I could bring to tonight has to do with a practice that I've been doing a great deal lately. And it has to do with when I wash the dishes. I live alone here. And uh, you know, I lived a, very much a life of a hermit, except for when my daughter's home or the monks and students and you come to visit. And so uh, washing dishes for me has become a training for what I'm talking about. And it has to do with literally being with the process, so that when I'm at the sink, I'm it, it looks very much like the way I prepare the altar uh, for a liturgy. Uh, and that's because that's how I approach it. So to do one thing at a time has to do with being intimate with what you're doing. And you can use any example you want, perhaps holding your grandchild as an infant or your child as an infant, uh, perhaps <coughs> painting, or work that you do as an artist. That whole attitude with what you're doing, where you're literally fully present to what you're doing, and you're not allowing distraction to distract you. So for me, you have to see it to know what I'm talking about. For me, it's I literally prepare the water you know, where, where I'm gonna wash the dishes with the right temperature, and I slow down to do this. So it's not about washing the dishes, it's about washing the dishes. It's about training my mind and being present to what I'm doing. So I'm not washing the dishes and thinking about this or getting ready for that in my head. I'm at the sink washing the dishes and I have this bucket in the sink that's just for the soap water and what have you and I prepare that, I clean that, I dry that off from the last use and I start all over in the very same way that I, I may prepare the altar for a liturgy, you know, it's done with mindful attention to every detail. And then when I'm finally washing the dishes, you know, I'm experiencing not only, you know, the cleansing that goes on of washing a dish by, you know, visually observing the dirt drop off the dish. It, it's, a, you know, I'm also experiencing the temperature of the water in my hands, the hot to the cold. And I'm doing this one thing at a time. One dish at a time, one thing at a time, and when it all gets to the end and the dishes have been washed and I've emptied the water out, I clean the space, and so forth. I take time to be with whatever I'm doing. Now washing dishes for most of us is an interruption in life. And again, if you've been listening, if you want to change your experience of life, you have to stop viewing everything as an interruption and just show up, you see? Even the most aggravating, obnoxious person that you often try to avoid can make a difference in your life if you know how to show up and just be present to that person just as they are. Just as we've been talking about with change, our perception, 
which is a function of our beliefs and expectations and desires to want the moment to be different than it is, literally also informs how we feel about being with this person. So how we feel about, you know, like, man, this, the, the Game of Thrones is coming on and I still got the dishes to do. I'm saying? Right? I tape it. <laughs> and watch it when I don't have the dishes to do. The dishes need to be done, I do the dishes. You see? And I'm present to that. If I'm late for the Game of Thrones, I got DVR. That's how I see it. <laughs> but the point is to be present. Doing one thing at a time when you're doing it trains the mind to be present to what you're doing. Single tasking is about life. Multitasking is about profit and loss. Single tasking, single tasking always brings profit to one's life. Multitasking, again, is always about just getting the job done. And there's a difference between, and one of, one of the key training practices used in, in Zen uh, training is work. It's not just meditation, it's work. In fact, since Dogen founded the Zen schools in Japan a thousand or so more years ago, uh, the policy in Zen monasteries all throughout the world is one day's work, one day's meal. No work, no meals served to you. So work is an integral part of, of the process towards enlightenment. But, it's, but there's a difference between just doing the work, because that's what you have to do, and doing it with a Zen mind. So even cleaning the toilets, even washing the dishes, can become an enlightening experience for the person who knows how to single task and be present to it in that way. And when you're doing anything, whatever it is you're doing, listening to me tonight, talking afterwards on your way home, or anything from this time forward, do it slowly. I mean, if you're going to listen to somebody talking, really listen to them, and deliberately. Don't set your hand to anything you're not going to do deliberately. Do not. And here's a big one. You got to start doing less. And not only start doing less, you need to do less and put space between the stuff you do. You need to do less and put space between the stuff you do. So, you know, one of the things that I do, especially when I'm cleaning my house, is I take a break. But I take a break as a space between, I just finished cleaning this, and before I get to this, even though I know I gotta teach in an hour or two, I stop. Putting a space between the stuff you've got to do is essential. Because when it's all just running into each other, if you will, there's no real deliberateness there, and there's no real mindfulness there. So starting to do less. Back to priorities. Everybody in this room can use a little inventory, and, and regular inventory. Never, it's not like you inventory once. You know, uh, my, fat, my family's business, part of it has been in warehousing. And I can remember as a young person working in my father's warehouse, and every month we took inventory. 
And there was a reason for that, not only to know what products were in there for the customers, but also to know what we needed to do to create a more conducive environment to provide the maximum service. Well, you need to apply that to your life. Regular inventory is necessary. Prioritizing what matters to you is necessary. But prioritize different than the way we usually do it. The way we usually do it is we prioritize in an effort to get it all done. Okay? Prioritizing in Zen is the stuff that really is important, you keep. The other stuff, get rid of it. Get rid of it. And even if you don't want to get rid of it, get rid of it. You see? Get rid of it. And usually the stuff we don't want to get rid of, usually the stuff we don't want to get rid of, everybody knows about because you know what they are? Your excuses for not being present. You see? The stuff we usually don't want to get rid of is what you tell me as your excuse for not sitting and meditating. You see? So get rid of that and you'll have the space you need to meditate. Spend at least five minutes to start, obviously, to just doing nothing every day. Nothing. I mean nothing. Do absolutely nothing. If you are not taking at least five minutes out of your day to just sit down, take a breath, experience that breath, experience the wind on your face, smell the roses. What are you, what are you doing? Why, why are you here? <coughs> you know, why? <laughs> just, why don't you just go now? <laughs> you know? I mean, especially on a day like today, you see? Five minutes a day, you stop, you do nothing. Then you increase it to 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. If you want a revolution in the country, make it eight hours. <laughs> but where you're actually doing nothing. You know, when you consider where romance comes from, countries like Italy and Spain, man, that is key. Siesta, boom, it all stops. And they don't care if you're an American, with 57 diplomatic passports, they do not open the shop for you. you know? It all stops. You know? And they do nothing. You know? Well, they do something. But the something they do feels like nothing. And if you've ever felt doing nothing, you know what I mean. <laughs> Stop worrying about the future because you have no clue. Not because you should stop worrying about the future. Stop worrying about the future because you have no clue. Nobody knows the future. Nobody. Not the psychic. Nobody knows the future. I would even venture to say God doesn't even know the future. You know? It's like I often say to people when they ask me, is there life after death? I tell them, I'll let you know when I get there. You know? Nobody knows. You don't know the future. I don't know the future. Stop worrying about the future. What you do know when you stop worrying about the future is the only thing you can know, and that is now. Now. So over the years, I've changed in many different ways, and I've gone to a place where people ask me, in fact, those of you who know me long enough know that my response to how are you usually is change. When you ask me how I am, I tell you, I'm changing. You know. Uh, I've added something to that now. I've come to realize that I, I, you need some more from me than that. 
because you always get offended. So I, now it's like I'm changing, but at this moment, this is what I am. Come back two minutes from now, it'll all be different. You see? So stop worrying about the future. Focus on the present. It's the only thing you know. It's the only thing you can know. It's the only thing you ever will know. When you're talking to someone, I talked about this a moment ago, be present. Don't be looking behind them. Don't be listening to the radio. Don't be waiting for the bell to ring or whatever it is. Be present. If you can train yourself to truly listen to them and not the conversation in your head also, the one that's preparing an answer, watch what happens. Likewise, when you're eating, you can bring this practice, this transformation to the, to the practice of the way you eat. So in Zen monasteries, we eat what is called oryoki, which is a formal training of mindfulness eating. And everything slows down. So when you eat, slow down, savor what you're eating. Take time to taste the food. And you can even do that with fast food. I mean, if, if you know, you've got, if you've got to stop at Mickey D's, you know, for some Mick Enlightenment, you know, what have you. You know, at least taste, taste that special sauce. Let it, whatever the hell that song goes. I used to know it. Special orders, though? No, is that Burger King? That's McDonald's special <laughs> That's it. That's a special sauce, cheese and lettuce, something like that. At least taste it if you're going to go to Mickey D's. <coughs> Slow down and savor your food. Start to learn to live slowly and savor your life. Take time to savor your life. I cannot tell you, because I've been really mindful of this more and more, uh, and, and it really is wondrous. Uh, really savoring how wonderful it is to be alive. And I've had several occasions, as some of you know, to where that ch could have changed at any second, and what have you. But more and more, again, if you need a kid, you gotta go get one, because they really help you with that. They really help you with being happy to be alive. And um, so, savoring my life, savoring these fun times. And you know, it's about putting down the cell phone when they're talking to you, you know? It's about, uh, uh, you know, really listening to them. You know, when you say, well, we gotta get going. And they say, and you never notice with kids, you say, we gotta get going. And they just keep talking about what they wanna talk about. <laughs> and there's the lesson. That's the lesson. We don't have to get going. Where are we going? Listen to me, you know? And so we need to slow down and savor life. Savor the moment. Savor this moment. And for those of you who are thinking in your head, yeah, well, that's nice, but you don't know, I do know, you know? Just because I'm a monk doesn't mean I don't know about all the things we gotta do, you know? I got a lot of things to do, too, you know, and so forth. Just wanna get that out there. <laughs> a moment ago, I mentioned this. Make cleaning and cooking a meditation by slowing down and paying attention to what you're doing. Don't just clean, be clean. Be it as you do it. And certainly remember this. If you think you're going to listen to me tonight, walk out of here and change everything, well, I got a bridge to sell you. you know? Practice, practice, practice. You cannot hear this, agree with it. 
So as I've said to my students over the past 40 years, Zen training comes with a warranty. In order to produce the maximum results out of this product, you need to first take it out of the package and second, use it. Again and again and again. And there are no, no refunds, okay? So if you bring it back to me, I guarantee you I already know you didn't read the instructions, you know. So practice, 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 practice. Change is our friend. If we can befriend it and be present to it, it has a lot to offer us. Fear, as Roosevelt said, is an illusion. We have nothing to fear but what fear itself is. And it is an illusion always distracting us from what is really so, with certain exceptions. And part of, again, the spiritual training of Zen, that, or the byproduct that comes out of Zen training, is over a period of time you start to realize how much of what we're afraid of is really nothing more than the boogeyman. And you know what happens there? In order to get over our fear of the boogeyman, someone had to come into our room one day and open the closet and turn on the light. The end. It's been a privilege being with you. A week from this coming Wednesday, the monks and I will gather here in the sacred hall for a liturgy for children. I have um, stepped into the world of child pornography and human trafficking uh, through various organizations that are combating it throughout the world. And children in this country are the highest population of poverty. Children in this country, child abuse and child trafficking, not only in this country, but around the world is on the increase. And it is a horrific thing. And if you have children, uh, you, you must feel appalled by it. So the liturgy two weeks from now will be children all, for children all around the world that our consciousness of the gift that they bring us as children uh, will rise and we will all do our part to end this horrific crime uh, against our children, not only in the field of human trafficking, but children in war and, and all of that that happens. So let's, let's pray. Uh, for our children, I invite you back. Two Wednesdays, it's on the calendar. Uh, Jizo, if you don't know the relationship there, Jizo on Monastery uh, was named Jizo on Monastery uh, back in 1985. Uh, it was named that because Jizo is the Bodhisattva for children. And so my life has been about a, a devotion uh, to that work, if you will. And again, and I invite you all back on that Wednesday to pray with the monks. Anything else, anyone? Which may be. Hey. The first Saturday, Master Sheen? Yes. So tonight we talked about slowing down. If you come the first Saturday in May, we are having a half-day session or a half-day sitting. You can come and walk the walk with us and train in slowing down and being present. So that'll be the first Saturday in May. Also, next month's Zen chat. Creating a Virtuous Society. Those of, you, any, uh, those of you who are Catholic will like this. It's about the seven heavenly virtues. <laughs> with a Zen mind. With a Zen mind. The seven heavenly virtues with a Zen mind. So uh, I'm looking forward to that talk as part, again, of my campaign 
in my effort to um, make a difference in our society by helping people to realize there is another way. Thank you again. Good night. Permit me to respectfully remind you, birth and death is the supreme matter. Everything is of the nature of impermanence. Gone, gone, forever gone. Opportunity is too often lost. Do not squander your life. I see a safe journey. I see a safe return. Good night. Good night.